Hidden beyond the human eye exists the unseen, a realm of spiritual forces squaring off in the supernatural, forces of cosmic power and proportion. And while the world spins, suspecting nothing, the enemy is on the move. His schemes finding footing in the familiar, his traps set in everyday episodes. So be prepared and ready to leave it all on the line. This is a life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all the forces of evil and darkness. And they won't go down without a fight. Welcome, everybody, to the last message in our first series on spiritual warfare. And I want to start by talking to you about spiders. How many of you, besides me, have a bit of an issue with spiders? I did a little bit of research, which actually increased my anxiety a little bit about spiders. Do you realize that scientists tell us there are approximately 50,000 spiders for every acre on Earth, except Antarctica and obviously in the ocean? That's a lot of spiders. So I've been a lot more attentive to spiders. I've been in my backyard, on my deck, I've been on my front porch, kind of looking to see if they're really there because I hardly ever really noticed them. And wow, research is right. There are a lot of spiders. They're awfully small and they're all around. They're different shapes and sizes and colors, both in my backyard and my front yard as well. But I'm glad they're outside. Or are they outside? I was sitting the other day in my favorite reading chair, and I noticed something moving out of the corner of my eye. I looked down, and there was this spider about the size of half my thumb crawling across the floor. So you know what I did? I cried for my wife, but she wasn't there. And so I had to actually get up and get up the nerve and courage to eliminate that, that spider myself. So why are you talking about spiders like this? Because they're all around us. I mean, right now there might be one under your chair where you're sitting or maybe crawling up your leg. You don't even know it. I mean, the other night I went to bed and all of a sudden in the middle of the morning, I, like at 3 a.m., I, I felt an itch on the side of my leg and man, it wouldn't stop itching. I looked at it later on. There were these two bumps there. I mean, who, what bit me in the middle of the night? I didn't even know it was there. I had to put some medicine on it because it itched so bad. You say, what are you doing? Where are you going with this? I'm just simply reminding all of us that, you know, spiders exist. They're all around us, even though we can't always see them. In fact, I read somewhere a couple of years ago that the average person swallows about eight spiders a year while they're sleeping. Their mouth is open and, well, the spider goes down and becomes part of our breakfast, I guess. But then later on, I discovered that was just a myth. Whew, thankful for that. Maybe randomly a person swallows one a year at the most. But my point is the spiders we know are there. We feel the evidence of it when they do bite us. When they crawl across us, we feel it. We can talk about spiritual warfare. And even though we cannot see the unseen enemy, that enemy is all around us, wanting to sting our souls, so to speak. We see the evidence of the evil in our world, its presence, its effect on our lives, the lives of others, even our environment. And just because we can't see it doesn't mean it exists. It doesn't exist. It does exist. Evil is real. It is powerful. 
And there's this control going on for your life and my life. What I mean by that is, you know, Satan is claiming us as his own. He reminds us constantly. He tries to remind God that we don't belong to God, that we rebelled against God, that we want to go our own way, that we are evil and undeserving of God's love and God's favor. But there's a counterclaim. The counterclaim is by God. He says, no, my son has died for those sinners. He's given his life for them, not because they deserve it, because, because I choose to love them. And they're mine. The point is, we're between those claims. The claim of the evil one, no, you're mine, you belong to me, go my way. And God says, listen, I've counterclaimed you in Christ. I want you back in relationship with me. Come. There is no in-between. There's no saying, well, listen, I'm not going to listen to God. I'm not going to listen to the devil. I am my own woman. I am my own man. I determine my own life. I'm sorry to tell you this, but none of us determines his or her own life. We're all shaped and influenced by forces outside of us. And a lot of times, we don't even realize it. We think we're in control, but we're not. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a man who was a prominent attorney in Paris. It's a novel. It's a fiction piece that was written by a French Algerian philosopher, author, journalist. His name was Albert Camus. And the book that I'm talking about is called The Fall. And that attorney in the book was a man by the name of Jean-Baptiste Clements. And Clements is a prominent attorney in Paris. And he's held in high esteem by everybody. This fictional attorney has a real seeming compassion concern for the poor. He does a lot of pro bono work for those who cannot afford the law. He comes to the rescue. And so society holds him great and high esteem. Well, everything's about to change in Clements' life. One night, he's crossing over the Seine River. As he goes across the bridge, he notices that there's this woman who's kind of hanging over the rail, looking down at the water in despair. He keeps walking until he gets to the other side. And all of a sudden, he hears this splash and some faint cries and then silence. What to do? Does he jump in and try to rescue her? Does he run and try to find somebody to help him rescue her? Or, hey, it's dark. There's nobody else around. Does he just walk away? To our shock and amazement, this prominent man who seems to have so many good virtues walks away. And as he does, suddenly terror grips his soul. What just happened? Why didn't he jump in to save her? And he rationalizes and convinces himself that if he had done so, well, the result might have been he would have drowned. And if he run to get some help to come and rescue her, well, the result is that he might have been accused of throwing her in. That's how it works. He's a lawyer. He knows. It was just easier to walk away. Nobody saw. Nobody knew. But he cannot fight this battle in his soul. 
It's like something's been pulled back on his life and he sees himself what he's really like in the dark when nobody's watching. He does not like who he is. He comes to realize that the only thing he's really committed to is himself. He's not committed to others. He uses others for his pride. He uses others for his society, his standing in society. He uses others so he'll be noticed. And so this poor man is just tormented by what's happened. And on another night, he's crossing the same river, but on a different bridge. And when he gets to the other side, once again, the torment comes into his mind and into his heart. He's trying somehow to justify himself. He's trying somehow to convince himself he's not that bad a person. And so he begins to think about other people that he knows that he believes he's better than. And he, and he kind of announces to himself, I'm better than this person. I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. He nervously lights a cigarette and he keeps thinking about this. I'm I'm better than that person. And all of a sudden he hears a laugh behind him. He turns around to see who's laughing and there's nobody there. And there's nobody there. And he realizes that somehow, someway, over time, without even realizing it, there's this outside force of evil that has subtly changed his life. And he's never been, he's never ever been truly in control. The same thing is true for you and me. We are never in control. The question is, who or what controls us? It's an interesting bit of information I picked up the other day fascinating about human psychology. He says, research reveals that when something has power over you, the largest part of the power is in your denial. You're under its power. That's so true. All you got to do is think about, for instance, an alcoholic. Everybody else, family, friends, onlookers, know that alcohol is controlling that person's life. But oftentimes the alcoholic will say, no, it's not in control of my life. I'm in control of it. I know what I'm doing. I'm okay. And it's not until a real crisis occurs when they finally admit how powerless they are over alcohol that they're able to get out from underneath its control. Until you and I admit that we are powerless over evil, we'll never be free from its control. And so what that means is that I have to either accept the control of God over my life, which his motive is love. His motive is reconciling us to himself. His motive is that we come back to being who he always wanted us to be. Or I slip away from God's control and I move under the control of the evil one. I'm either living in the light or I'm living in the darkness. I'm either living in the truth or I'm living by a lie. There is no middle way. I am not ultimately in control of my life, which is a message that is so hard for us, especially as Westerners to hear, because it's all about being in control. And that's why Paul wrote those words that we've been looking at. Ephesians chapter 6, he says, put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. 
That word able is so important. In other words, what God is saying is if you don't put on the armor of God, you won't be able to stand against all the strategies of the devil, this evil one. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood. We talked about that last weekend. But he says, against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Many, many, many. How many are there? Are there 50,000 per acre? We don't know. One early church father said, if all of the demons were suddenly to come you know, to life, that is, we could see them, the sun would be blocked out. I don't know if that's accurate or not. But the good news is this. No matter how many demons, no matter how many evil spirits there are, we only need one Jesus who has won the victory, who's defeated them all on the cross. And when I come under his authority and under his spirit's control in my life, man, I'm in a good place. But everything is fighting to pull me away from him. We go back to the passage, and Paul says, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Yeah, there's a battle. There's a battle going on. And you may be thinking that I spent a whole month talking about this. Why? Why keep reminding us that evil is real, that evil is powerful, and just because I'm a follower of Christ does not mean I'm exempt from the conflict. Because I'm convinced that we are not convinced as Christians of the presence and the power of evil in our world and around our lives and even in our lives, our own evil nature. I'm convinced that because of what I see going on in this world. I want to tell you something, and I want you to remember this, please. The devil is a mighty power. You and I have no, we have no strength or power against the evil one in and of ourselves. We need the grace and the power of God working in us and through us. But that starts by becoming convinced how evil this world is and how evil is working in this world. Are you convinced? Do you believe that? I'm not sure Christians in this country especially are really keen and aware of that. And so for a few moments, I would like to talk to those of us who call ourselves the followers of Jesus. I don't want to scold you. I don't want to be scolded. I don't want to make you feel bad. But I, I kind of want to pull the curtain back. And I, I want us to really take a deep look at how Satan is working to destroy the church. How he's gotten his tentacles into the church and into Christians' lives and is dividing us, creating disunity among us, showing how we have become complicit with the world. I don't think we realize the apathy that exists among so many believers and our willingness to compromise with the culture in order to be accepted and to have an easier time of it in life. You know, in these recent months, we've talked a lot about the whole issue of justice, and rightly so. We want to frame it in the proper way, so we call it biblical justice. Read your Old Testament carefully, especially the, what's called the minor prophets. God has an awful lot to say to his people and to this world about how we treat each other. God cares so much for justice. 
God cares for the orphan. God cares for the widow. God cares for those who are abused and sexualized. God cares for the poor. God cares for the prisoner. We have to play all the, all the strings of biblical justice. Everyone needs to be talked about. Everyone deserves to be heard because God loves people. And part of our responsibility as being his church is to manifest that love across the board to all the injustices. God loves and cares for each person. He created each person. He doesn't want us to look at somebody differently because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity or their language. But there's something that's come to my mind, and it's a big issue these days. And that is the whole issue of the unborn, what we call abortion, the taking, the murder of life within the womb. And as soon as I say that, I mean, I can feel the tension that comes into the church amongst believers, even in families. Somehow we have taken that issue and we've put it off to the side as though it's different than all the other issues. Listen, God loves and cares for the unborn. And I'm not here to guilt and shame someone who's been through an abortion. I'm here to tell you we serve a God who loves and forgives. He wants to heal and reconcile. And I want you to know that. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. It doesn't mean that it is a political issue. It is not a political issue. It is a moral issue. And when you look at injustice, biblical injustice across the board, there's no greater injustice, no greater evil or greater sin than to take the life of one that is innocent or to debate when one becomes a true person, leading into infanticide and euthanasia and people who have mental and physical challenges. Who are we to judge who should live and who should die? It is not for us. It is for God alone, our creator. So how is it that the church, how is it that believers have become so uncomfortable with this? How is it that it's divided us? I mean, just read your Bible. God values life. Look what God says in Leviticus 20 to his people. If there's one thing God abhors that God will not tolerate was when they offered their children as a sacrifice to God Molech. It's nothing different when it comes to the unborn. When we eliminate the life of the unborn, we kill that life. The motive for it falls way short of anything God would ever accept. And I'm not talking about the rare instances where it's to save the mother's life. God says there will, be, there will be great judgment against his people if they practice this. And all you have to do is read, read the Bible and look at history and look at how God has judged his people. For that abomination, that sin. In Jeremiah chapter 32 God, using kind of a human language here, we call it anthropomorphism, says, it never would have crossed my mind that my people would sacrifice their children. That doesn't mean God didn't know, God didn't expect that would happen. It just means it's so abhorrent. It's like God can't even imagine that we could be so evil and wicked that we would do something like that. And God still loves the unborn's life. 
My point is simply saying to you, how can we call ourselves born-again believers in Jesus? Embrace the scriptures as our truth and yet be so divided on the issue and call it political rather than keeping its right framework. It's moral, it's biblical. We need to pay attention to every issue of justice. We need to be careful that we don't somehow begin to think that one form doesn't really matter or that we're too smart and God was wrong on it. It matters to God. And it's going to have a determining factor, I believe with all my heart, it already has, but it's going to on the future of this nation. And as believers, our responsibility, I'm not saying is to go and protest and be hateful. There's, that's, that's sin. But what are we going to do to lift up the truth, the value of every life in the womb and out of the womb? 1.5 billion children since 1973 have been killed because of abortion. A fourth of the African-American population in this country has been destroyed by abortion. We have to value life. Life matters to God. Let me give you a second illustration. Let's talk about the issue of, let's talk about the issue of sexual morality, purity. What's happened to the church? That we now have so-called Christian celebrities and authors and even preachers who are coming out and saying, you know what? The Bible has not been correct on this issue. Or it meant this for that time, but this is a different time. What is it that's caused us to believe that somehow morals have changed and need to be updated? I'm talking about Christians believing and thinking this way. Why is it a majority of young Christian adults, so-called Christian adults, can embrace sex outside of marriage as viable and okay with God and all the different sexual preferences that are out there? as believers, as the followers of Christ, as those who claim to believe in the Bible. What has happened to us to so subtly and now quickly change and adapt views that are not consistent with the Scriptures? What's happened to me? Clements asks in the novel. What's taken over my mind and my thinking? I can't believe what I have become. What is this outside influence? I was reading some research recently, and I don't want to put it up on the screen. It's just, it's just too much, but I want to read this to you. It's very current. It says, a study of the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University found that just 6% of Americans adhered to biblical worldview. The findings were released in the American Worldview Inventory 2020. It also found that millennials held the lowest number of biblical worldview holders at just 2%. What is happening to us? According to the study, American biblical worldview has been rapidly eroding, but eroding the fastest for millennials. Previous findings from the American Worldview Inventory 2020 show the rapid erosion of the biblical worldview in American culture with only 6% of adults today possessing a biblical worldview, down from twice that 12% in the mid-1990s. 
But nowhere is the cultural shift more dramatic than among the youngest American adults ages 18 to 36. The findings show a generation radically different in its worldview and beliefs from previous generations. Additionally, the survey found millennials are the most likely to exact revenge when wronged and are least enthusiastic about America. However, most millennials, get this, most millennials claim to be Christians, even though they have the least biblical worldview. Additionally, millennials report that they have the least respect for other people out of all age groups surveyed. And they are twice as likely to say they respect someone who holds the same religious and political views as they do. What's happened? How do we get there? How do we call ourselves Christians but have a decreasing biblical worldview? I came across a quote, maybe you've seen it. CNN anchor by the name of Don Lemon said this recently. He said, Jesus admittedly was not perfect when he was on this earth. You know, some things you just, you just need to unlearn. Now, I would expect that out of somebody like him. But what amazes me is how people will hear a celebrity or a superstar or a journalist say something like that and believe it. I mean, when did God let me get his degree in theology? When did he become God's spokesman? Where in the Bible? Does Jesus ever say to his disciples, guys, I want to admit something to you. I'm not always sure I'm 100% right on things. I may have a few of these things wrong. So really think for yourself. I don't have a Bible like that. I've never heard Jesus say that. Yet someone can say that. And flocks of people will go, yep, I think he's right. And sometimes Christians will say, I think he's right. Why? Because it allows us to accommodate what we want to believe. How we want to live. Rather than coming under God's authority. And you know something? What tells me, what reveals to me that I've actually come under Satan's authority is I'm committing the same sin that he did. In essence, what's happening in my life is I'm proving by my accommodation, by my belief that I'm in control, that I can determine what is good and right. I'm proving what he did in the garden to Adam and Eve. And I'm buying the same line. Remember these words in the first message of our series from Isaiah 14, when God is indicting the devil for what he's done? Let's look at him again. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven about the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. In other words, I'll be in control. I'll be the God of my own life, and I'll be the God of this universe. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. When I choose to act outside of the authority of Christ and the authority of his word, I'm behaving just like the devil. 
I'm saying, I know better than God. I know what is truth. I know what is evil. And I'll live my life accordingly. And then judgment comes as a result of that. You say, well, what's the answer? What is the answer in all of this? We're so crowded by all these voices and all these ideas and all these lies and all this evil. How do I survive? How do I thrive? How do I help my children, my grandchildren? How do I make a difference in a world filled with confusion and disunity? As believers, we've got to bow to Jesus at the cross. We have to announce our powerlessness and ask him to take control and accept his control and believe his truth. See, that's part of what it means to put on the whole armor of God. It means to come under his authority and it means to live by his truth. Look at Paul's words to Timothy, who is a pastor in Ephesus. He says, gently instruct those who oppose the truth, even within the church. Gently, notice gently. Not harshly, not condemningly, but in the spirit of Jesus, in grace, but nonetheless, with unshakable confidence in the truth, he says, instruct them. Perhaps God will change the people's hearts and they will learn the truth. They will learn the truth. Not just head knowledge. My goodness, the number of Christians with head knowledge that do nothing with it. To learn the truth means to actually not have it in my head, but also get it into my heart and live it and practice it. Then they will come to their senses. Then they'll wake up and go, oh my goodness, look what's going on. Then they'll come to their senses and escape from, what's he say? Escape from the devil's trap. That's what I've been talking about for this past month. For they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. We're either for God or against God. I don't know if you've read Pilgrim's Progress or not. It's written by John Bunyan. It's the journey of a Christian. In fact, Pilgrim becomes known as Christian. And toward the end, he's getting ready to go into the celestial city. But there's a problem. There's a path that leads to the celestial city, but on both sides of the path, there are these ferocious lions. Now they are chained to a stake, but they have room. And they're hungry. And Christian is vulnerable. He says to the person that's guiding him, he says, how, how am I going to do this? They're going to lurch out at me and claw me to death. But the person says to Christian, not, not if you stay to the center line. And so Christian, by faith, begins to make his way down the center line to celestial city. And sure enough, those beasts lurch out at him with those huge claws, but they fall short of striking him about a half inch from his body. And Christian walks down that center line. And he never looks to the left 
and he never looks to the right. He knows if he stays on the center line, he's going to be okay. As long as you and I walk in grace and love on God's truth, on the line of God's truth, we'll be safe. We'll be okay. And next weekend, we begin that journey by putting on the whole armor of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this has been a tough message, Lord, because it's hard sometimes to look at ourselves. We're so easily offended. We so easily judge others. Lord, I pray, help us to hear your words in grace. Help us to be honest and take an objective, long look at the culture and the world that we live in and accept the fact, oh God, that things are getting darker by the day. Evil is mounting up. Help us, Lord, to see that we who call ourselves Christians in so many ways have been duped by the evil one. We've compromised. We're apathetic. Or we're angry and threatening. And both are so wrong. Lord, help us. Help us to walk the center line of truth in all matters of life. In biblical justice. Immorality and purity. And in all the other aspects of our life. God, help us to see ourselves as the light of this world. We're here to offer hope, to show mercy, to extend the forgiveness that we've received. And Father, I pray for any here today that may have been reminded of a sin in their life in the past, but who've come to you and confessed, oh God, help them to be reminded of your love and your mercy and your grace. And for those of us, Lord, who may have become aware in our lives of our slippage, of our compromise. Oh God, we bow before you. We bow at the cross. We ask you to forgive us. In these few moments, before we wrap up, I want to ask you sometime today to just take a half hour by yourself and to simply ask yourself, am I walking by God's truth? Am I bowing to Christ alone? If there's any area in your life that is compromised, confess it to him, repent, and follow the way of truth. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend.